I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, if you're still there, and the children are dismissed to Children's Church. Revelation chapter 2. And we'll be in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, the words to the church at Ephesus. Richard read it for you, and so what I'm going to simply do is ask for the Lord's help, and then we'll delve in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We do pray you would speak, O Lord, that you would speak through your word. We also know, as we sing, our hearts are prone to wander, prone to wander in this life through our week, even in a short time. Our hearts need to be shepherded. And we thank you that we are gathered together again. It is a foretaste of glory when we can fellowship with like-minded saints, when we can come and hear what You have to say in Your Word. Lord, by faith, I pray that You would help us to keep our eyes on Christ, that everything we do, everything that we are about, would be about Him. Lord, as we open this chapter in Revelation and look at the words that Christ had for this old church, may it speak living and powerful words to us in the 21st century. May it speak to our church. Would you help me and help Hearer to to just have it sink in? Lord, we want to keep our first love. We want to be faithful to the Savior and Lord of our souls. Would you also instruct the children in children's church as They're taught your praiseworthy deeds as they continue to grow and develop with their minds that they would latch on to truths that would be planted like seeds in their hearts, that that you would continue to bear fruit in our church of people who are becoming disciples and other warriors in the next generation. Lord, we thank you. We pray that you would bless our time. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, the more I read the book of Revelation over time, the the more I'm convinced that chapters 2 and 3, which are Jesus' words to the churches, that these chapters are not given nearly the amount of tension that they ought to be. These chapters are foundational to really the impetus of the whole book, which is actually an epistle to these seven churches. And though the book centers around the revelation and the coming glory of Jesus to consummate His kingdom on the earth, it is the church that is to overcome until He comes. And the big takeaway of the book is this call to overcome and to be ready for that return. Many times, I think, the tendency of Christians in wanting to look at a book like Revelation is is to sort of rush faster through these opening chapters and get to what they call, quote-unquote, the good stuff in the book. They want to get to the prophecies of what is to come as they look at the world today. They want all the interesting symbolism and the apocalyptic portions. They want to get to the action in the book, the the judgments of God that are laid out in the book, the events that will unfold on the earth, all the signs and wonders. And all of those, of course, are compelling reasons to read this book 
and they're there for our benefits. But I would suggest to you that to skip over these opening chapters would be a grave mistake for any generation of the church. We have to beware lest we approach the book of Revelation in order to just be fascinated. For the reason Jesus gave this book to the church is that we might be ready for His coming and overcome. That we might be ready when He comes again and see Him. And it is these chapters, 2 and 3, where that the exalted Christ speaks to His churches. If there's any other reason to not skip over these chapters, it's the part of the book that Jesus is speaking. You might have a version of your Bible where the letters are in red. You haven't had red letters in your Bible since the Gospels earlier in your New Testament reading. So I think it deserves extra attention. For every glance you give at those visions and those symbolism in the book, there should be, I think, a greater tie back to these chapters. I mean, let's think about it. These chapters are the plainest chapters in the whole book. I was just thinking about the content that Jesus says in chapters 2 and 3. And the prophetic portions of the book have never had universal agreement in the history of the church. There have been multiple theologians with different interpretations, different positions about the very difficult portions of the book. But these words in chapters 2 and 3 are from the lips of Jesus Himself And they're as clear as day. May we not skip over the plainest part of the book of Revelation. And they're not just clear for the seven churches of Asia Minor that John wrote to, but they're clear and relevant for all churches in every age. So as we delve into our Lord's words to this ancient church, I want to, of course, at the outset, call us to examine our own hearts. This is words for us. Because this is what the Spirit is saying to all the churches in plural. This is written that we might take heed. I was thinking through the churches in chapters 2 and 3. And several had their own unique issues and circumstances. Some couple of the churches are said to be very heavily persecuted. Others in the list of seven are dealing with false doctrine in the church. Another is dealing with worldliness. They all have these unique challenges, unique struggles and pitfalls, and unique commendations. And I think that in God's providential wisdom, because of these churches... In a providential way, we have in this book a situation that is a mirror for all the churches for all time. Because throughout the history of the church, there have been different churches that resemble these churches. I even think there's a play on the word seven, even though they are seven historical churches. I think God is also saying, as seven is used as a number of completion throughout the book, that this is the complete word to all churches for all time. Each church should examine themselves by the words that Jesus gave to the churches and consider what might be their possible pitfall 
that would keep them from overcoming until he comes. So that led me to thinking. What would be the, the church in this list of seven that most resembles what we would probably have to take heed of? And I don't want to pick one over the other and say that we're, not, we're immune to certain ones because I think there's important things to glean in each church, things that we need to all be aware of. But I kept coming back to one. If there's one of these churches that I think churches such as ours in our circles ought to pay closer attention to, I have to confess that I keep coming back to this first church that is mentioned, the church at Ephesus. Our typical Reformed evangelical churches are often not too weak when it comes to areas of sound doctrine and it's stressing the importance of doctrine. We don't really struggle with the importance of restoring preaching to the service. Because we live in the legacy of the Reformation, Scripture alone is such an important tenet that we hold tenaciously to. So we're very quick to refute any idea that contradicts the Word of God. We're very studious of Scripture in our Bible studies from the time they are young to the time we are old. We study theology. We're very attentive to church practice. That in all of our doings, we're not contradicting the Scriptures and their instructions. We're often very quick to reject a practice that seems novel or that diminishes the, the regulative principle for worship. We have a lot of fencing that we do to make sure we're conformed to the Word of God. We hold to creeds. We hold to confessions. We catechize. We have programs centered around biblical exposition. We attend conferences with biblical teachers. We're discerning. And we don't just allow any novel idea to influence our thinking. And saying all that, I'm... I'm not saying that we're doing any of those things perfectly. I'm also not saying that there's people outside of our reformed circles who don't have strengths that we need. I think there are. I think there are things that Jesus would commend about other churches, maybe not in our little fold, that we could work on. I will suggest to us, and I think there's good warrant from our text, that if there's a pitfall a church like ours and our circles could potentially have, it's not really in all of these areas, but it would be that we would have knowledge and activity with cool hearts. If there's one issue I think we would have, it would be that we have knowledge and activity with cool hearts. And that is the situation in the church in Ephesus. And that is where we will have our time this evening. You and I can have a lot of checked boxes in the departments of doctrine and church practice and how much we're reading. And yet, the Lord Jesus, as He looks into the church, may see that our hearts are waning in love. I want to ask us at the outset to make this personal, to drive it home from the very beginning. 
Where is your heart this evening? Where is your heart? I'm not asking what you're involved with in the church. I'm not asking what you're learning in the Christian faith. The big question is where is your heart in all of it? Has your heart become cool? Or has it been on fire with affections for Jesus? Either way, whatever state you are in at this moment, this passage is for us. If your heart has grown cold, this text from Jesus is for you to rekindle your first love. If your heart is currently abiding and you do have an intimacy with Him lately, this passage is also for you that you would take heed lest you fall. Let's see how Jesus addressed this problem in the Ephesian church and what He directed them to do to recapture the love they had at first. I want to jump in to verse 1. Verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of Him who holds the seven stars in His right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I want to note first the setting in Ephesus. As our church is about to start studying Ephesians on Wednesday night, I thought perhaps this could be a good opportunity to give a quick look at this ancient city that this church was in. The city of Ephesus was a thriving metropolis in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Some New Testament scholars I read referred to it as the New York City of Asia Minor. It was on a major seaport, and it was really a, a booming and bustling commercial site for travel in the ancient world. It was along the postal route. This is where people came in and out to go on highways. Culturally, Ephesus was advanced in in many areas. They were advanced in the latest literature of the day. The arts, the architecture, business. But with that, much like our our modern day megacities, what tends to happen in a fallen world, what came with all of this human achievement was also booming paganism and immorality. It was the location of the famous Temple of Diana, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And although many have appreciated that architecture of that temple, this was the sort of the hub of immorality in the city. This was the cesspool of immorality. This is where the businessmen who would come into town would make a beeline for. And it was a place of rampant immorality and drunkenness and revelry. It was like the Vegas of their day. A very spiritually dark and morally depraved pagan city. That's Ephesus. And it's huge. And in the midst of all this, the Lord Jesus Christ birthed a church. I just thought thinking of that was amazing. 
what a miracle Christianity is. In the midst of all this, Jesus redeemed out from among them a people who would be His own. It's a reminder that Jesus said, I will build My church. And the gates of Hades, even in Ephesus, will not prevail against it. We should never lament too loudly that our culture is too dark for God to move. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. The Ephesian church continued to grow and to develop as one of the model churches in Asia Minor. Many think they were even responsible for planting the other churches mentioned in the seven churches. This is the church being addressed by the head of the church at the top of the list. And verse 1 continues, the words of Him who holds the seven stars in His right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, he's not named because in chapter 1, he's already been identified as the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is building his church. And I I taught from chapter 1 just a short time ago, if you recall. John is the one who's receiving all this in a vision while he's being persecuted and exiled for the Word of God. And generations have gone by since the earliest epistles in the New Testament. This is much later when the churches have been going for a while. And all of these churches, along with Him, are being called now to overcome. And the saints are to be ready for the return of Christ. And if you recall in chapter 1, the church greatly needed a vision that Christ was exalted upon His throne. Not the Roman emperor. Not anyone else. Jesus is building His kingdom. And He will return in glory. And in the meantime, He's not aloof to what is happening on the earth. He is walking in the midst of the churches. And His eyes, which are described like eyes of flames of fire, are penetrating into the life of the church. And chapter 1 ends by stating that the stars in His hand, which you see in this first verse, are the angels of the churches. And there's, most scholars tend to agree that this word angels simply just means messengers and that these are likely the human messengers who would bring this message and revelation to the churches. These are the, the, probably the pastors, the people who preach the Word, who would be responsible to be His mouthpiece. When this letter of Revelation would travel down the postal route, it would reach the teachers. And it would be the teachers in the churches, such as in Ephesus, who would be responsible to read these words of Jesus to the people. Here's what the Lord thinks of our church. Just imagine that for a second. Pastor comes on Sunday. John has sent a letter from Jesus. And as our Lord has words for the Ephesian church and all churches like it, He begins with the reminder that their messengers are in His hand. That is a call for one thing to listen to them because He is holding them forth. 
It's also because he gives special protection to his teachers throughout the history of the church. And it's also a call to strict humility on the part of the messengers because those who preach the word will have stricter accountability to him. There's also a reminder that he walks among the lampstands. Jesus gives this reminder throughout the addresses to the churches. The end of chapter 1 says, these lampstands are the churches. And it's a reminder of the church's primary mission. We are the lampstands in our cities. We're the ones who shine in the spiritual darkness. The church's voice cannot be silenced against a hateful culture. We not only shine the gospel, we shine to expose the darkness through the word. And we shine in gospel witness with the glad tidings of repentance and faith in Christ. We reveal the light of Christ. We shine the light of his love through good works that they might see them and hopefully by prayer praise our Father in heaven. We're to be a holy people, and to be a church is to be a lampstand. And there's no choosing. You're a church, you're a lampstand. You don't get to be a church and have a bowl over the lampstand. If you are a true church, you are shining. You are in contrast to the spiritual darkness. And as we describe the spiritual darkness of a city like Ephesus, we can imagine how greatly the Ephesian church must have shined in that culture in sharp contrast to the immorality and to the beliefs and customs. The epistle to Ephesians, which hopefully a lot of us study as as Wednesday night Bible study starts. Welcome for the plugs here. The epistle to the Ephesians has a lot of commendations in it. It's one of Paul's epistles where he gives a lot of praise, a lot of reminders, not a lot of rebuke. They had been brought from death to life. They were called to continue abstaining from the immorality among them, another theme in the book. They were unified. They were to continue fighting with God's armor, the spiritual war. And all this was because the risen Christ was in their midst, walking among them. And he walks among the lampstands, tending to them, and he is the source of the church's light. And being in the midst of the church, he is always analyzing. He's always evaluating. He's always weighing. And he sees his people as they are. We can fool many people, but no one can fool the penetrating eyes of Jesus. And in the lineup of these seven churches that Jesus has words for, they're based on his assessment. And he has an assessment for this church in Ephesus and every church like it. There's no other voice the church ought to heed. Remember that in chapter 1, it says that he has the voice of many waters meaning that His voice drowns out all other voices. Hear Him. When Jesus speaks to this church in Ephesus and to our church as we read it, we must be all ears. 
Let's delve into the words of Jesus to this signature church at Ephesus. I'm going to read verses 2 and 3, and we're going to see some of the strengths of this church in Ephesus. Verse 2, Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. How you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. I want us to first note the strengths that Jesus commends at this church. I want us to especially note that there's two full verses of strengths, not a drop of rebuke in these opening words. They're all amens from Jesus. I think it's important because as I was thinking about this, I I think we're tempted to want to get to the coming rebuke. Like we just know the the other shoe's about to drop. It's like when someone's giving you these compliments and you're getting ready for the but statement. Like, But these are real strengths. I want us to appreciate that the Spirit was moving in this church. They're legitimate. It's an important thing to note because you and I so often lack any nuance and balance when it comes to evaluating churches. We think we're good judges of churches, of our church, of other churches. Jesus is the perfect judge of the church. He weighs it perfectly. We say just blanketly, such and such is a good church, and such and such is a bad church. I just think it's worth observing here. Our Lord Jesus is the perfect judge, and it may not be all bad or all good. It's often a combination of both. For no one is all good. And there are a lot of churches that we might deem bad, but they're not all bad. Jesus does commend this church. He sees everything in perfect proportion. He views the church with a view to every sin and every weakness, yes. But at the same time, also with a view to every evidence of grace. And when Jesus looks at this church in Ephesus, we should take special note that this is a true church with many strengths. We can't just toss this off when we get to the rebuke and go, well, that was a bad church anyway. This is a legitimate church. And he gives two verses of commendations I hope we are living up to. Jesus opens these verses by saying, I know your works. Nobody knows the church like the Lord Jesus. And notice it is works in the plural. Many works are happening at this church. The Ephesian church was a vibrant and dynamic church. And after this he adds, and your toil and your patient endurance. I studied this phrase, toil, 
And it meant to labor to the point of sweat. This was not a lazy church. And not only was this a church that labored for the Lord in their church activity, they had the perseverance to see it through. It's been a long time since the the words of Paul from the Ephesians to them. They've lived it out. They've held on to it. They didn't slow down. They didn't stop under pressure. They've kept on. They resisted stagnance and slothfulness in their zeal for the work of the Lord. That's the church we're talking about right now. Amens from Jesus to this church. And I think it's a comfort to know that our Lord Jesus knows our works. Nothing escapes His notice. No one knows the church like Jesus. He sees every work in the church service. He sees every work behind the scenes. He sees every work in the Sunday school room. He sees every cold cup of water given to a child. He sees everything happening in the church. And he's taking notice. He sees every bit of encouragement and exhortation in our conversations with each other outside. He sees the works that are done throughout the week in each of our lives. He takes notice over the course of years and decades like Ephesus, like the Ephesians. And not only is this church commended for maintaining all for what they had going on inside the church, look at next, note that they're also commended for what they keep outside the church. Verse 2 continues, You cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So this was a church with a very high doctrinal and moral standard. They didn't lower the bar to make everyone comfortable to be a part of their spiritual country club. This was a church where holiness was emphasized I think this is a church where they took very seriously the confrontation of unrepentant sin. This is a church where church discipline was taken seriously. It had to be if they were a holy church. I think if you went into this church, you might even, in the modern day, with our sensibilities, we might even be offended. Someone's pointing out something that's off in our spiritual walk. They were very serious about life for Christ. And notice it says, they tested those who call themselves apostles. If a a Bible teacher had come to this church on a journey and they were passing through and perhaps wanted to share with the church what's going on in their ministry and maybe a teaching or a presentation, they were not given access right away to the pulpit. They didn't just lay their hands on anyone. It says they tested them. They carefully guarded sound doctrine. They didn't just assume, oh, you must have been with Paul. Oh, I believe you. They sat down with them. And note again, this is commended by Jesus. This is what Jesus did in his ministry. He he saw through the wolves in sheep's clothing. This was the work of Christ to refute those who contradict He agrees that these men that you tested, 
They're not my apostles. And he commends them. This church in Ephesus was a fortress of orthodoxy. And it's not too much of a surprise. I, I, I was thinking through the history of the church of Ephesus in the New Testament, and they've had quite a few apostles and their associates who were working in Ephesus. They were not going to be easily fooled. I'll just list a few without getting into passages in the New Testament, but listen to this list. You're founded by the Apostle Paul. That would be good enough to have. Paul found us. That's big. He stayed with them for years. Book of Acts, later on, he departs from them with many tears, very intimately connected to the greatest missionary to ever live. They were taught by Apollos. They were pastored by Timothy, First and Second Timothy, written to Timothy as he's pastoring Ephesus. And later on, if that all wasn't enough, the Apostle John was known to have pastored and spent a lot of time instructing the church at Ephesus. And that's probably where he wrote the Gospel of John. They knew apostles. They knew the truth. And Jesus commends them. Verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently, and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Again, I, I just want to quickly commend this church that he's talking to. This is not a worldly church. It's not a cult. It's not an apostatized church. This church was not a bunch of quitters, and they don't grow weary, he says. They persevered. And notice Jesus commends them that they do this, they bear up for His name's sake. They didn't have a different Jesus. This was not a church with activity to build a a monument to themselves. If you were to go up to someone in the church of Ephesus and ask them, so what are you guys all about? I think they would undoubtedly answer, this is all about Christ. And they would explain the whole gospel. This church had everything going for them. These were very real strengths. And they're known by the Lord Jesus. But, as Jesus knew all their works, He also knew what was missing in their hearts. Someone passing through Ephesus might pass through, attend a service, and see all that was going on, but they're not going to conclude what Jesus concludes because Jesus sees the heart. Verse 4, six chilling words. But I have this against you. I was thinking about those words. After reading all our Lord commended of this church, you almost don't want to keep reading. You almost just want to stop the service right now, talk about, be encouraged by this great and moving and doctrinal church. I imagine that when the messenger got to this part in the words of Christ, I imagine there was a painful pause, a sober alertness when the Ephesians heard that their pastor read this part of the letter This I have 
against you. This letter was from the very words of the head of the church. All these strengths and then to come to, but I have this against you. Look what he says. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Or as some versions render it, you have left your first love. In the midst of their great ministries and their zealous stand for the truth, their love had grown cold. The glow was gone. Primarily, love for Christ, I think it could also be argued by consequence, a real heartfelt love for one another. Probably also love for the lost. Because all of these are tied as an overflow of love for Christ. And the way this is put is that first love had been abandoned or left. It didn't just happen overnight. It wasn't like a flat tire. This drift had happened gradually over time in all the business of their thriving church. This is the pitfall that the Ephesians had fallen into, and this pitfall exists for you and I today. As in any relationship, our relationship to Christ is subject to fluctuation. Though our, our union with Christ cannot be broken, Jesus points out here, our hearts can be estranged from Him while we're yet in the flesh. Sometimes in the Christian life, our passion for Christ is full of fervor and on fire. At other times, gradually it becomes stagnant, stale, mechanical. And we can come to a place, perhaps without even knowing it, where we simply go through the empty emotions of our ministry and the Christian faith without a vibrant love for Him. This was the case with the church at Ephesus. This church was a great church. They, they believed correctly. They exhausted themselves in Christian ministry. They defended the faith. But over time, something had become neglected and abandoned. They had not lost their love in total, because we know that is impossible for a saint but they had left it in a very great part. Perhaps they may have reasoned to themselves that they were loving because, you know, love is a matter of the will and the mind and agape, and that's all true. I sometimes wonder if we use that to diminish the fervor and desire and affection we ought to have. Emotions do have a place in our love for Christ. Once there was a burning love for Christ, but by this point, their blazing affections had cooled off and it is not okay with the head of the church. They were still coming to church. They were still serving. They still held the sound doctrine, all that he commends. But their hearts were now in a different place. Perhaps you would observe them in the earlier decades of the first century and maybe they looked pretty similar to the later decades 
But Jesus sees a difference. Their service to Christ still existed. It was at the expense of their intimacy with Christ. And according to the Lord of the church, there's a big difference there. I hope we know there's a big difference there. Service to Christ does not equal automatically intimacy with Christ. Now this doesn't mean we always feel intensely on fire in our relationship to Him, like like we're always coming down from the mountain with our faces glowing like Moses. No one can ascend and keep that going all the time. We're still in the flesh. We have not yet arrived in glory. But let's not be deceived that a cool heart is ever acceptable to the head of the church. The flame of their lampstand had grown dim. Their own witness, their own existence as a church, as a church beacon, was now in jeopardy. As I mentioned, I do think that included in this drift of vibrant affection for Christ, that there was consequently a drift in vibrant love in their ministries among one another, both to their fellow saints and to the lost around them. It tends to happen and be connected that way. Perhaps they were doing all the acts of service, but actual warm affection was absent in the heart. Perhaps they were doing everything because it was sound. This is what you do. This is what you do if you're going to hold to apostolic teaching. This is what you preach. This is how you test someone. This is church practice. They knew where to put fences. They knew the limits. But the love in the heart that the Spirit wants had grown cold. Their hearts were not in tune with a loving motive. And the danger was that they would become in generations just an outward shell of what they once were. What the Pharisees and the teachers of Israel had become. Jesus knows hypocritical religion. And in love, He warns this church. These are words of love to an actual church. does not want them to become like that. He wants them to overcome. I think every believer, to some degree, can relate to this passage. I can relate to it. Maybe you're thinking of times you've been in this place in your relationship with the Lord. When it becomes mechanical, when it becomes cold, maybe some of us are examining ourselves before the Lord right now. And we're thinking, Lord, this is me. I've been so preoccupied. I've been so busy. I was doing ministry. I've drifted from closeness with you. Perhaps you're wondering how to make a U-turn. How, how do you turn back? How do you get back to that place? Thankfully, our gracious Lord did not end His address to the Ephesians at that sharp word of rebuke. He didn't end it there and go, okay, next, Church of Pergamum. Like, no, there was more. There weren't done. Verse 5. Look at what Jesus says. Verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. 
If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. We see in this verse a threefold remedy. And it's threefold. It's a, it's a three-point sermon from Jesus. Just rapid fire. And I'll just lay them out from the text here and just give a quick word about each. I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. Actually, I've noticed there's a lot of pastors who have latched on to these three imperatives from the text, and they've even given them an alliteration for me. Those are apparently popular. I saw them in multiple sermons. I was like, okay, I'm using these too. The three R's that Jesus gives. So hopefully we can remember. What do you do when you've left your first love? When love has grown cold? Three R's. I'll just give them really quick here and then lay them out. Number one, Jesus says, remember. Number two, repent. Number three, repeat. Remember, repent, repeat. Now, none of those are complicated. I'll just go through each of them and just say a quick word about each as we come closer to our time of ending. It begins with simply, remember. The first thing Jesus says, if you're in this state, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Jesus essentially says, you have left a very high place. Remember that high place. Replay it in your mind what it was like when you were with me. When, when love was fervent. Do you remember a time in your Christian life when you simply just loved Jesus Christ and you were filled with red-hot zeal to please Him? Do you remember when you were first saved? Or maybe a, a season later, a turning point in your Christian life. Perhaps a time when you couldn't read the Bible enough. You were highlighting it all over. A time when you just had a hunger just to learn about Him. Not even just for theology and stuff, but just because you were interested. You wanted to know Him. A time when you couldn't stop praying without ceasing. You wanted to pour out your heart to Him. Perhaps a season of life when you, were, you eagerly sought out warm fellowship with other Christians. You were excited about this community of saints. You loved talking about Jesus. You loved talking about Jesus to the lost. A lot of us can relate to a season, a special season of the Spirit's pouring where we were, the faith was new. And Jesus was remarkably precious and fresh. I was thinking about this. This is why I think it's important that we ask each other from time to time what our testimonies are. Uh, there's something moving about sharing testimonies. There's this deep feeling of being touched when we share our own testimony. And there's an excitement we feel when we hear someone else's. We're reminded that God saves. We, we hear how God moved in them and we're reminded of our own experience 
because we're remembering the fire of our first love to our Lord and Savior. And Jesus says, remember that. Remember from where you have fallen. If you're not in that place of intimacy with Christ, then no matter how knowledgeable you're becoming in the faith, no matter how much activity you're doing, you must see through the eyes of Christ, you have fallen. You're on the ground. You've left the highest place, the the best place. Consider your ways. Remember. The Ephesian church, no doubt, had that excitement and fervor when they were saved out of the dark pit of paganism. And they just wanted to learn and grow. And they were learning all these new things, Jews and Gentiles together, fighting the good fight. But what was once exciting was replaced by empty duty and a sense of moralism. Jesus wants them to remember, and he wants us to remember. Not complicated. Remember. Secondly, also not complicated, after remembering, Jesus simply says, repent. Repent. I was thinking about just that imperative. Repent. There's kind of a twofold way of looking at that. That word repent has conviction in it, but it also has comfort in it. I'll start with the conviction. There's a a sting to that word repent because it reminds us that in the eyes of Jesus, the one who evaluates the church, this drift from first love to Him was not a small thing. It wasn't like, oh, a rough patch just going through this time. It was a sin to be repented of. It is a sin to violate love to Jesus. This is the greatest commandment. To love the Lord our God. That He be first in our hearts. Don't excuse it by pointing to schedule or circumstances. Don't minimize it by saying you didn't know. You just it, One thing led to another and we were moving and we were in ministry and it just sort of forgot. No, Jesus says, doesn't say you're the victim of losing the love you had at first. He says you have abandoned the love you had at first. Other things, even good things, rose to that high place where I belong in your heart. And you exchanged it. Jesus calls us to repent. Own it. Confess your sin. Review your heart. Confess your idols. Repent. I also mentioned this word repent has comfort in it. It's convicting. It points out our sin. But I hope you also see the good comfort it has for you and I. Jesus doesn't have us go through hoops He doesn't have us walk a hundred miles now to get back to Him groveling. He doesn't give us some special act of penance. You don't have to do a, a bunch of good things to get back into His favor because remember, you never earned His favor in the first place. 
Simply repent, appropriate yourself, and return to Him. Turn around. Come back to me. He is the great physician for the heart that's become spiritually sick. And as a surgeon or a doctor is so careful in mending a wound, so is our Lord. And He will restore us. Remember, repent. Third, having remembered and repented, also not complicated, repeat. Repeat. Repeat what, though? Jesus says, do the works you did at first. Having contemplated them in your mind through remembering, having repented, just go back to those things that put me first. Go back to the basics. This includes the basics of your own Christian life. The things we mentioned in, in hungering for His voice in the Word and praying without ceasing, seeking out other Christians, talking about Him. Do those things. On the individual level, that's true. For a whole church, such as the Ephesian church, which is a true church, it involved getting back to the loving works that, they, that first characterized a newly saved community. I mean, think about what the Ephesians were saved from. They were unified. They were sacrificial. They were like the early church in Acts. Just the basics. They dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer, to the breaking of bread and the Word. No major formulas. Perhaps they had all these programs that were stacked on top of those things. And Jesus just says, peel back. Focus on those. Remember why you were doing that. This is the purity and simplicity of devotion to Christ. The Ephesians once had a zeal that brought about the planting of other churches in Asia Minor. And their lampstand at one time was blazing hot and bright. But without realizing it, they had abandoned the fervor and love for Christ, the one who died for them, the one who was returning. And that light in that dark city of Ephesus, was in danger of losing its very source, Christ Himself. And in any case, if anyone would doubt that this loss of love did not offend and grieve the Lord, look at what He tells them next. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is a threat of divine intervention on the part of the head of the church to, to close their whole operation as a church. Remember that the church is a lampstand. And Jesus gives a very sobering word. If your hearts remain cool, and this continues, at some point, beware, because I will remove your witness from Ephesus. You will no longer really be a true church. This is how true churches fall. This is where it starts. Abandon first love, and you will just be an empty shell. You'll be good to no one in the world. For a true church and a true Christian loves Christ, and ultimately an overcomer who repents when his love wanes. 
it makes you wonder how many churches were once strong but lost their lampstand. How many buildings you see, it says church on it. It has the name of Christ in it. It has a cross. Maybe at one time, it had believers who loved Christ. But over time, a church that started alive has become dead. And Jesus sees this way before it's coming. And He gives a remedy. Remember where you've fallen. Repent. Repeat the works at first. As Jesus wraps up His words to this church, I'm going to also wrap up this sermon. He continues in verse 6. Verse 6. Yet this you have. By the way, how kind of our Lord to His people. I was wondering why it's kind of sandwiched there after this rebuke. And I I think, at first I was wondering, but I think it's because Jesus, He knows our frame. He knows this was going to cut to the Ephesians' heart. He um, does not bruise a broken reed. Even after His stern rebuke and warning, Jesus graciously gives them another positive. He sort of lets up on them a little bit. Yet this you have. He knows how much we can bear. He knows we are but dust. He knew the Ephesians were going to be convicted. And he reminds them again what they have with him. He says, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And there's not time to go over what scholars say about this group called the Nicolaitans, just Sort of in summary, this would be a group at the time, most likely that turned faith into some perversion, tried to make licentious living a norm in the church, antinomians. And Jesus reminds them, after calling them back to the works they did at first, look, I remember that you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. I hate the works of the Nicolaitans. In other words, remember, I'm with you. We're in this together. You are still my church. Don't lose your first love to me. Return to me as your first love. As you hate the works of darkness, love the works you did at first. These are the steps that Jesus gives leading back to first love. And the whole charge ends in a way that also ends on the other churches. Verse 7 gives a a sort of summons. He says this to conclude. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Notice that to hear these words from Jesus is to hear what the Spirit is saying to all the churches. Churches, plural. All the churches need this address from Christ. It wasn't just Ephesus. They're a case study. We're all supposed to look to this church. And not just the other six churches to look at this church, but all churches in all places, in all generations for all time until He returns. Because He says that to the one who conquers or overcomes, 
He will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The end of the age. This succession of faithful saints who hold their first love. If you overcome in this, you will eat of the tree of life with Christ. There's a lot packed into that last statement. I'm going to just suffice it to say that as a believer and as a church, we must overcome if we were to enter into our Master's reward. We must hold to our first love and be His shining lampstand on the earth if we are to be ready for His coming to consummate history. Are you overcoming? Do you love Christ? The eating of the tree of life and the entering into the paradise of God is is one of the many traces in this book that God was placing this as a final bookend in the canon of Scripture. It, It harkens back to paradise lost in Eden, and it concludes with a call to overcome to paradise restored. As the tree of life and eternal life with God was lost, so it will be regained by Christ, but only to those who overcome, only to those who love Him. Let's hold fast and overcome by loving Him who first loved us. Let's pray. Father, these are good words. These are precious words from the lips of Christ. They're hard words. They're soul-searching words. Lord, we want to be your lampstand. We want to shine. We want love to have its rightful place in our heart. Love for you first. Love for one another. Love for the lost in Fillmore and in this world. Father, we thank You that You walk, that You sent Your Son, and that He walks among the lampstands. He walks among the churches. Lord, I pray that You would help us to be faithful, that we would overcome, that we would, as we are prone to wander, that You would seal our hearts for Your courts above, that we would um, fall more and more in love with Christ as we see Your grace poured upon us. Would You bless our time of fellowship as we continue in worship? In Jesus' name, amen.